You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Have you heard? The RHISAC Cyber Intelligence Summit is coming to Denver, Colorado from April 9th through the 11th. The summit is part of the RHISAC's mission to help improve cybersecurity across the entire retail and hospitality sector. As a result, it has become the can't-miss event for retail and hospitality cybersecurity practitioners. Join us for three days of professional development and networking with the brightest minds in retail and hospitality cybersecurity. Attendees have access to prominent thought leaders and industry experts and plenty of opportunities for collaboration. For more information and to register, visit summit.rhisac.org. That's summit.rhisac.org. We can't wait to see you in April. Hi there, listeners. This is Luke Vanderlinden, Vice President of Membership at the Retail and Hospitality Information Sharing and Analysis Center, and this is the RHISAC Podcast. We have a pretty packed episode for you this week, so I want to get to our great guest quickly, but I do want to point out one resource that might interest you and this, again, is about the SEC's newly announced rules on cybersecurity and corporate governance. Last episode, I shared some analysis from our great partners at the National Retail Federation on the then very newly released rules and what's in them and not in the final version. The NRF is a great partner for us, especially in the policy work they do, which really frees us up to focus on our reason for being, and that's really the practical applications for our members. The RHISAC's Vice President for Intel Operations, Brian Hundley, put virtual pen to virtual paper and gathered together some thoughts on the areas that our members and really every retailer and hospitality company should pay close attention to, to respond to, and to comply with those new rules. It includes having the right incident response protocols in place, clarifying the process to determine materiality, because really the requirement to report is based on materiality. He also touches on training, communications, So we posted his thoughts on our public-facing blog, so you don't need to be a member to access them. Just go to rhisac.org slash blog slash, or click on blog in the navigation under resources. Uh, Go there, take a look. But coming up on this episode, we have three great guests. We shine the member spotlight on Charles Fedorko, Director of IT Security at Sage Hospitality. I will also speak with Ellen Sabin, who has just published a book for children on cybersecurity, And finally, I'll be joined by the RHISAC's own Lee Clark for the briefing. If you want to be one of our guests or just want to tell us about something on your mind, please make it relevant to cybersecurity and retail and hospitality. Shoot us an email at podcast.rhisac.org, or if you're a member, hit me up on Slack or Member Exchange. All right, we are now joined by Charles Fedorko, Director of IT Security at Sage Hospitality. Charles, welcome to the RHISAC podcast. Glad to be here, Luke. Thank you. So uh, your title notwithstanding, you're the CISO equivalent at Sage, right? Correct. Uh, so great. We we actually got to see each other face-to-face earlier this summer at the Hospitality Show in Las Vegas, so it's good to see you again. And thanks for agreeing to be our member spotlight, both here on the podcast and on our blog. So Let's shine that spotlight on you. I'm guessing not many people have heard of Sage Hospitality. So tell us a little bit about what it is, what it does, and what keeps you busy there. Sage is a hotel, restaurant, and spa management company. And we're based out of Denver, Colorado. We partner with real estate groups and hotel owners to manage their hotel, restaurant, spa investments, uh, while also managing and designing our own hotel and restaurant investments. And what that means is Sage is the trusted partner that operates all business functions for our properties, from HR and payroll to cybersecurity. So you have your own hotels as, that you own, but then you also operate on behalf of other owners as well. That is that is correct. I think this is probably a part of the hospitality industry that almost no one who just is a regular uh, stayer at hotels, a guest, knows about. Like they just assume if they're at a Hilton or a Marriott, that's just a, that's owned by them. 
So how many how many properties does Sage uh, manage and slash own? So there's about I want to say about sixty five hotels, thirty restaurants, and about ten spas. Wow, exciting! And uh, and so what what do you do there as your as the director of IT security? I help and develop and implement the cybersecurity strategy here at Sage. Uh, I'm trying to find ways to decrease risk and increase the security posture of Sage and the properties we manage. I maintain compliance, I follow privacy regulations, and uh, I build and develop the policies here. Um, and I continually seem to fill out audits and assessments. Uh, I also lead the security team here, and they manage and maintain and deploy our security tools and monitor and respond to our security events. Uh, the team and I also collaborate on incident response, risk management, uh, our projects, and you know we want to make sure we align to our department goals. So that's, that's a much kind of bigger umbrella than a lot of our CISOs see, just because you know, I imagine it's a, it's a fairly uh, efficient and tight operation you have there. Yeah, and it's, you know, we have a small team, but we've looked for ways to be efficient through our tools, through our processes and our people. Um, so it's, you know, and, and with, uh, you know, 100 locations, 65 hotels, uh, you know, we, we have good, yeah, we have a good foundation here and we know we're trying to mature on it. But at the same time, you know, we're trying to continuously improve on what we're doing. So I imagine when you were a kid, you didn't think someday that I want to grow up and work in cybersecurity because when you were a kid, if I'm guessing, there wasn't such a thing as cybersecurity. So how did you make your way into this industry? Well, I have a liberal arts degree in English literature from the University of Rhode Island. And that's where I was first exposed to emerging technology. And what I mean by emerging is Telnet, Unix, and Gopher protocol. Uh, and this was like the early 90s when Netscape was the hot browser at the time. Um, and while I was in college, somehow I was hired to support the Alumni Foundation Network with no experience. And that's how I got started working in technology. I was supporting users. I was loading programs. I was running cables and I supported a token ring network to date myself a little bit more. That's great. Yeah. I, I think uh, we're right around in, in college, right around the same time. I had uh, been to dial up bulletin boards before. My very first email address was provided by my college and it was an entirely, it wasn't even Netscape. It was entirely text-based system. I think it was called Lynx, L-Y-N-X or something, but it was just, okay. you know, either, I can't remember if it was green or orange text on a, on a black screen, but uh uh, but no one was talking about security back then, at least as as far as I knew. So you got into IT that way, and you went right with your uh, with your non IT degree into into IT. You know, for for me, technology it was new and it was innovative, and it was exciting. And I just kind of you know, as far as my mind work, it was the bright shiny object that just was always attracted to me, and um, that was kind of like my background. You know, after college, you know, I was a snowboard bum, but then you know, kind of had this technology background. So that's kind of like what I was focusing on when I was looking for jobs and whatnot. Yeah, just something I kind of always fell back to, but also, you know, learned, kept on learning more and more and gaining more knowledge. So how did that transition into, into cybersecurity from just IT? Yeah, sure. So, you know, over the years, I had, you know, multiple IT roles and, you know, kind of system admin roles, tech support roles, IT management. So... I was an IT manager for uh, here in Denver for you know supporting uh, a team of infrastructure and ops guys, and um, I was actually uh, scammed once, and so that's kind of how I got into into cybersecurity. I rented a vacation property and made a wire transfer, and it disappeared. So that event was actually the catalyst for me to pivot and focus on cybersecurity. How did they contact you and, and what methods did they use? Was it cyber related or was it just in general being more aware of security? I was traveling back to the to the East Coast and I was going to a festival in Newport, Rhode Island. Okay. And so since I knew I was going there, I was living in Colorado at the time. I told my family, hey, who was scattered around, around the East Coast, I'll be in Rhode Island, come meet me and I'll get a beach house. So I actually searched for a beach house on Craigslist of all places and I, you know, and then, you know, the owner at the time was super responsive. Um, you know, we we're emailing back and forth. The pictures look great. And so I made the wire transfer to book the house. So, and then um, I went out to Newport, Rhode Island, had a great time at this music festival with my friends. And then, you know, at the time, and then I, during the festival, I started, you know, calling and texting the, uh, the owner of the home. 
And then I noticed that the responses started to slow down more. Wow. And yeah. And then um, I, you know, festival's over. I go to Narragansett, Rhode Island, where I stretch in the house. And I never forget, I turned the corner and I just had this sinking feeling in my stomach. And then I walk up to the house. I knock on the door. The door opens. There's this like a huge family, like all laid out on the in the living room after a long day at the beach. And I say, I'm like, hi, are you renting the house this week? And they all they say, yes, I am. And I'm like, oh, I thought I was. And I said, sorry for bothering you. And, you know, and that's it. And yeah, and I got scammed. Yeah. And then after that event, I, you know, the company I was working for at the time uh, needed someone to, to, to raise their hand and take on the PCI compliance. So it was just perfect. Wow. So then, uh, so what, so how did your career develop from that point, starting off with PCI and then, and to where you are today? You know, a lot of chicken from the fire hose, you know, with initiatives, but I learned a lot from the like third parties that we partnered with, you know, so, you know, at the time, you know, it was PCI compliance initiative and I'm like, okay, what was that? And it was remedying PCI compliance gaps, but I was working with a really, uh, with a local PCI company and I just learned a ton. I was a sponge. I asked a million questions at the time. And then, um, and then I started to really figure out what cybersecurity meant and where I could take it. And then, um, you know, I kind of bobbed around, uh, to companies that were looking for cybersecurity professionals specifically. And then um, I got, the, you know, I started getting certs, started reading, started doing workshops. And, um, you know, and then um, I guess I, I got to where I am, honestly, a lot of reading, a lot of listening and a lot of doing. Yeah, it seems it seems like this industry, the path to it is different for everybody. Uh, just because, you know, you, some people take a technical route. A lot of people don't, uh, but they but they end up here. So. That's great. So um, when we were in Vegas, you were on a panel uh, moderated by the RHISX own Kristen Dalton, and the topic was securing hotel operations across multiple brands and owners, which is a huge challenge. And it's what you guys do. It's, it sounds like a huge challenge just from coordinating different technologies, managing expectations up and down. Tell us a little bit about uh, about that experience for you. Yeah, Perfect topic because brands make up about 65% of our hotels with the rest being independent hotels. And just like you said, there's a lot of complexity within those factors when no hotel is truly the same. Uh, There are different standards, there's different systems, there's different network topologies, different IT devices. And we inherit a lot of risk through all types of tech and security debt when we take over management of a property. Uh, But we've developed processes over time to simplify the approach of remediating that security and tech debt through foundational security controls. Um, And I also gave the importance of cyber insurance. That was another topic I was talking about. And the indemnity it can provide to cover any expenses before, during, and after a breach. Um, And uh, it's important to have cyber insurance, my feeling anyway. I mean, cyber insurance providers assist with covering the cost of fines and revenue loss that a breach could cause. And uh, what's really valuable is some underwriters will provide experts to perform incident response and forensic services. And they also have services around breach readiness, like tabletop exercise, and they'll help you build a cybersecurity incident response plan. Yeah, I've been hearing that more and more positive things about cyber insurance is that they'll, it's not like other insurance, that they'll be the really a good partner for folks these days. Yeah. And, and like you said, it, it's the partnership. And it's for me, it's another resource where I could reach out to these partners and understand what the cyber insurance landscape is looking at. And we all know the last couple of years, you know, premiums are going up, coverage is going down. And it's good. You know, I partner with them and learn about that, but also to realize that, um, you know, cyber insurance is somewhat normalizing with uh, a decrease in, in ransomware attacks. So hopefully next year is going to be a better year for everyone that wants cyber insurance. I think a lot of people view the questionnaires they get from their insurance company in a somewhat adversarial way. But really, it's, it's as you learn, as you mentioned, learning from lots of different sources. And if you truly view it as a partnership, the things they're asking you are maybe things that you could, could point you in the direction to, to areas where you may not be focusing on. Can't agree with you more. We use it as a gap analysis. I mean, we have 65 properties, so that gap analysis we use against 65 different sites, um, and um, and it's great to just kind of 
every year you go in front of your underwriters or a group of underwriters, you know, provided through your insurance broker. And you basically telling the story about your cyber insurance program. A little masochistic, but it's a good experience. Many partnerships are. So how, how does the RHISAC help with um, the work that you do with uh, securing Sage and, and all your different properties and, and brands that you work with? Well, I was first introduced to the community when Sage was a member of the Travel ISAC group, which later merged with the RHISAC group. And, um, you know, for me, it's, it's the sharing of resources available in the community. It's, it's, it's invaluable. You know, not only is there, you know, no shortage of suggestions and opinions and recommendations, but the, you know, if I have a project coming up and I'll just reach out to the, to the, to the RHSI community. And, you know, if, if I'm challenged, I'll find out how, how members got over that challenge or even like if there's an initiative that comes up and I'm really not sure if it's, if it makes sense at this time, whether it be budget or it's, if it's uh, relevant to, to what's going on in my business right now, I'll reach out and, you know, see how, what members do and find out what business specification they took. And if it makes sense to us, it's, you know, but it's also cybersecurity teams come in all shapes and sizes. And, you know, we're a small team here and I've been a team in one and other places, but, you know, it, it's, the community makes a small team feel bigger because of the support that comes from the RHI SAC. That's excellent. So, you know, look, looking at hotels, I, I think they have obviously unique challenges, even in, within our membership, because of a lot of the, the IoT issues that you have. Yeah, t- tell us a little bit about, about those, those kinds of things and maybe what you've learned from some of your, your hotel and hospitality colleagues. Sure. IoT comes in a lot of shapes and sizes. And, um, you know, before we, we try to assess, you know, look, if you're in a hotel room or have you, you know, or think about when you've been in one and think about all the different devices that are connected in a hotel room, but then it's outside the hotel room, like kiosks and, I mean, you name it, like self, you know, self-checking kiosks, you know, anything that takes a credit card. And it's up to, you know, you know, our cybersecurity department to assess those devices, you know, because, you know, we don't know where those devices are, are sending out to. We don't know like how they're handling our data. So you have to do a good job of protecting your, you know, your guest data as well as your, uh, your associate data and just make sure that data is, you know, stored correctly, that it's not, you know, that it's, it's, it's transferring securely. And, you know, one thing that was really amazing when, I was at the um, the hospitality show. Was talking with Steve and you know Steve from Wynn and Ken from um, from Sands, and I was just amazed at what those gentlemen have to secure. I mean, walking through a casino, visual and audio stimulation is one thing, but it's just it's just constant, you know, casino guests, you know, putting in their credit cards and whatnot. And I, I couldn't believe, I couldn't imagine, you know, the the task they have to securing that environment. But, you know, but during the, you know, it, it amazed me. But, you know, one thing, one thing about IoT devices, which was funny during the panel was, you know, Ken of Security at Sands was explaining how uh, his IoT devices expand out to Japanese toilets at his casinos. And that's when we realized IT security just isn't, isn't just about zeros and ones, but also about ones and twos. Ah, uh, very good. Very good. Yes. I remember that the, uh, the Japanese toilet that connected to the internet for some reason. Guess why not? Uh, seems like everything is, but yeah, it's just, uh, it's amazing to me with, with hospitality, you have, um, your guests are all about, it's all about service. It's all about, uh, easing their, easing their time, their comfort. And a lot of times for them, it's a stressful environment because not everybody's used to travel. So just, um, it's all set up for convenience and, and not necessarily for security. So, you know, for everything from, you mentioned, uh, you know, check-in on your device uh, with apps and, and, uh, and just getting in, getting around the whole the whole environment is just amazing. Guests are there for the experience. I mean, they're there to vacation. They're there for business travel. And same with our associates. You know, our associates are here to do a job. And I feel it's up to us to take care of what they're not thinking about, their privacy, their data. It's for us to secure. And it's for them to enjoy the experience. Right. So this is supposed to be a member member spotlight, not about you and not just about work. So tell us a little bit what would you do in your free time? Sure. Um, I mean, over the last five years, you'd think my hobby was taking certification tests and attending classes and workshops to get knowledge. But I live in Colorado, and I, I take take advantage of the natural splendor as much as I can through getting outside and camping, hiking, snowboarding, biking, fly fishing, and I, I wow. travel to take those. Yeah, I, I travel to take those hobbies elsewhere. 
Um, I'm a big fan of the World Surf League Pro Tour, which just finished up yesterday in Tahiti. Very exciting, the most dangerous wave on the planet. You're not uh, you're not dialing in from Tahiti right now, are you? No, no, I wish. Um, no, nah, I probably wouldn't be on a podcast right now if I was. I'd be out in the water. Uh, but uh, yeah, I collect vinyl records. I see that. A healthy lo- amount of live music. Uh, I have a garden. Yeah, I have a garden that keeps me busy here in Colorado. Um, and I read a lot. And I love reading books that are, are will be adapted into a TV series or a movie to bring that story to another level of vividness. That's kind of been my thing over the last couple of years. So do you read them before you see them in, on TV or film? Or do you read them after? Uh, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll watch something. I'll be like, oh, wait, it's a, it's a movie as well. Or I'll read something and I'll... I'll figure out it's a movie or I'll, or vice versa. Uh, but I do prepare like Oppenheimer, the big Christopher Nolan, who I'm a, a Christopher Nolan uh, fanboy for. Oh, wow. Um, I, had to, I had to read Oppenheimer before I saw it in the movie. So you're on Team Oppenheimer and not Team Barbie? Uh, well, I did see Barbie and <laughs> I thought it sent a great message. But oh, um, yeah, and if Barbie had a book, I'd probably read it. And, uh, but yeah, Oppenheimer, fantastic. That's great. Well, uh, thanks for thanks for joining us on the podcast, Charles. So, uh, when will we see you? When will I get to see you in person again? Will you be joining us at the RHISX Cyber Intelligence Summit? Oh, definitely. Can't wait. Love it. You know, just uh, integrate more in the community to support the community, and um, gotten a lot of people over the years. So, I'm really looking forward to to talking shop and sharing experiences, and um, and of course, uh, you know, there's always thought provoking panels and discussions and. And honestly, I always seem to be inspired afterwards to, you know, to see where I could take my next career move or the next step in, you know, my career journey. Excellent. That's great. Well, of course, if you want to join Charles and me and hundreds of your retail and hospitality cybersecurity colleagues, the summit is from October 2nd through 4th in Plano, Texas. Charles, thank you so much for letting us spotlight you on the RHISAC podcast and uh, looking forward to seeing you in a couple months. You're welcome. Great to Great to be here and great to support the, the community. Thanks, Luke. All right, I am now joined by Ellen Sabin, the president founder, uh, chief author, lots of titles probably, of Watering Can Press. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Ellen. Thank you, Luke. I'm happy to be here. So uh, I don't think we've ever had an author before on the podcast. So uh, tell us uh, why we have you and what your relevance is to cybersecurity. Okay. Uh, Well, first off, thank you for having me. I always like being the first. I am the author of a series of children's books that engage children and adults and communities and companies in topics that are important to families, societies, and corporate life. And by doing that, I think you were engaging me because my newest book is a cybersecurity book for kids, which is used not only to educate children, but also educating children is the best way to educate their adults. Yes, of course. As a, as the father of a three and a half year old, a one and a half year old, I do the reading, uh, not them. So uh, you're, you're getting the, the parents as well in your, in your reading audience. Oh, Luke, and it gets worse. Wait until they're six and seven and eight and, and, and you're shamed into behavior. <laughs> oh, excellent. Excellent. So uh, you said this isn't the first book uh, you've written. And, and is this what you had always planned to do, be an author of children's books? No, actually, my the first 25 years of my career, 20 years maybe, um, my training's in public health. And there is relevance to that in that I had a variety of jobs. I was a hospital administrator. I was in healthcare politics. Um, and then I spent a long time as the head of the Flying Doctors of Africa doing international public health work. But the common denominator in public health work, which carries over to how I write my books, and frankly, also why I'm still very cause-based. The common denominator is in public health, we learn that the best way to get you to stop smoking or wear a seatbelt, or if you're in Africa, use a malaria bed net, 
is to educate, as I was just implying, your seven, eight, nine, 10, or 11 year old. Um, because not only will they start positive habits at a young age, but they will pick your word, educate, shame, interest you in modeling better behavior if you engage it at that age. So taking a, a page from the script of public health, when I started writing these children's books, which the first one was a birthday present for my niece, it took off, became a bestseller, and then one thing led to another. But when I started writing these, I realized that the approach could, would, should be very similar, yeah. that often the topics I tackle, including, frankly, cybersecurity, can be obnoxiously preachy, righteous, academic, boring, if not inspiring. So I took a page from public health and create activity books that really give kids agency and engage parents in learning and delving at the same time so that by offering the book, we're getting both generations at the same time. So it really became my second career by mistake, but I've now written 13 books on different issues. And like I said, the cybersecurity one is my newest. So that's that's a fascinating sociological observation that you can you can pick up a primary and secondary market, if you will, uh, by by going after the kids. So 13 books, what other what all topics have you covered? My first one, which sort of inspired the transition um, was promoting giving and charity and community awareness. It's called The Giving Book, Open the Door to a Lifetime of Giving. Very proud of it, very excited about it. And it was essentially my family's values and DNA, which drove all of us to go into humanitarian work. Um, and it was supposed to be a birthday present for my niece when she turned six. It was a handwritten book. I gave it to her returned a couple months later from Africa to 700 emails in my inbox saying, where can we buy the book? And a weird unfolding occurred and one book led to a next. By the third book, I would only write a book when some corporate or community or philanthropic leader pre-ordered at least 10,000 to get me to take on the topic in my activity style interactive way. So the other books range from, there's a grieving book for children, which I'm terribly proud of. Um, there's a book called The Hero Book, Learning Lessons from the People You Admire. So all about promoting role models. An environmental book for kids, a financial literacy, health and wellness, a book that Autism Speaks initially compelled me to write, which is called the Autism Acceptance Book, Being a Friend to Someone with Autism, a special needs book, and a book that I was really honored to write that supports children whose parents are wounded in military service. And then lastly, I think I'm missing one or two, there's a, a STEM book for kids. Okay. Yeah. Because that first one was written from your own experience and your own viewpoint, but all these other ones have taken so a lot of research and you have to kind of delve into the topic and teach yourself before you can teach the kids and their parents. Huge amount of research. And it's just, I mean, as you bring that up, Luke, it's amazing how much more one needs to research and get it right to put it in a 64-page, fun, simple book for a child. Right, because you're not just uh, putting a blog out on the internet and hoping that you can stir up the pot, but it's really, you're trying to educate, and it's on paper, so it's uh, it means more. So um, what prompted you to write the one on cybersecurity? I was actually approached by a very large international bank that, who had seen my other books and took the first 30,000 to get me to write it. And then I really got into it. I mean, I know you have a copy of the book, you've seen it. So, you know, some of the folks on the back cover from John Pistoli, who was the former deputy director of the FBI and Ed Amoroso um, to Suzanne Spaulding and Keith Alexander. I mean, these, these people didn't just endorse the back cover. I learned a lot. Um, to write the book. But you know what, Luke, I felt like that my um, approach 
could serve this population. It fell into the camp of, A, it's a really important topic for children, for families, and for companies and society. Right. And it's, it's never too early or too late to learn security awareness. And absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you, a lot of our clients who have used the book in their companies have said, wow, like this is as helpful for my grandmother as it is for my kid. Um, the lessons are the basic lessons, however you cloak them, and they're the same lessons up and down the age ladder. Um, B, I, I felt like it is often presented, um, as I said, very sort of academically or... It's, it's hard to make it exciting. And one of the recipes, I think and hope that Watering Camp Press books are known for, are taking something, giving kids agency, getting them excited from the very cover where they write that they co-authored the book. You know, so it, they become a fun journey. So I thought I could do that with this topic um, after I learned enough. <laughs> big, big, big caveat there. And I also thought that many of my books are shared widely by companies. And I also thought there were really, really valuable touch points that bridge sharing the books with employees or with community partners or with schools or with nonprofit partners, because there aren't too many ways to engage up and down the family ladder that also you know, could be used. So I was excited about the challenge of doing that. Excellent. So um, so what are some of the lessons that are in the book? Not, uh, don't want to do any spoiler alerts here, but uh, so w- what a message are you imparting here? Well, there's the general message I'll start with, but just by virtue of the book existing, I would love to encourage parents and others to start, like you just said, as early as possible. As soon as a kid has a device, it's time to start getting them excited about realizing if they want to join the cyber world, there's fun, there's excitement, there's great things they're going to do. And oh yeah, also there are things to learn responsibilities if they want to continue having fun and learning doing it. On the side, before I get to the specific lessons, some of the general lessons by the book existing are, hey, parents, hey, companies, by the way, companies need the next cadre of workforce of folks like you, and they're not going to have it if we don't start now. So parents, companies, nonprofits, schools, start early. B, these are family conversations. They go up and down the ladder. If you teach a child, that educates an adult. And if you teach an adult, that'll, that'll drill down to the, to the children. In addition, before I get into the specifics, I'd say the book also greatly encourages the idea of having open communication so that children will ask questions so that they won't keep their cyber world a secret, whether it's because they're playing online or doing whatever, but encouraging them to ask questions, letting them embrace their power to make smart decisions, exercising their critical thinking skills, which is key in cybersecurity, and guiding them also, frankly, to to choose thoughtful and kind behavior to reduce cyberbullying and enhancing their coping skills. Right, because there's a whole other layer when you're talking with kids, not just the security awareness, but the cyberbullying aspect as well. I, I would add to that sentence, Luke, and say not just with kids, but with adults. I think that we all could, would, should be more trained, not just in our awareness of what we say, but frankly, if we go a little deeper here and say what we put up online. Adults, you know, how many times have all of us sent something by mistake or posted something and thought, oh my God, that was supposed to be a surprise party. I shouldn't have put that up. I mean, you know, whatever it might be, promoting the ability to be mindful not just of what we say, but of the risks and dangers. And now to really answer your question, sorry, I didn't answer it yet. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, I'm people can't see me, but I have the book in my hand. And if I just quickly flip through the pages, what are some of the key takeaways? They're fun, they're cool. I mean, the, the journey of the book starts with engaging kids, like I said, in agency. So 
helping them realize why in the world they should even care. The first chapter goes into things like, what are your favorite devices? What do you do online? Like helping remind all of us, we are, we do, and we will more and more and more forevermore live in the cyber world. So let's get excited and embrace what we get out of it. But then the next chapter is all about being cyber careful. So it's stuff that you know, do you know it like at the back of your hand, but that is good to remind not just children, but adults about like in children terms, stuff like being the boss of your personal information, you know, what's, what's okay to share or not share, or what does discretion mean? What's, what's smart to post or not post? What are smart ways to think about passwords and tips about that? even down to something that sounds sophisticated, but what's a password manager? Like these are, these are things that you can make fun, or at least I think I hope I make fun. And then I get into, you know, other specifics, like I call it careful clicking or caring for your devices, things like, you know, what to make children aware of, you know, what's a virus and what to be aware of and what are these pop-ups that they should ignore. And, um, and, and basically drilling them into getting excited about asking and learning with an adult. Um, so it brings the conversation back into a home to things that adults might want to research with their kids, like what's multi-factor authentication or, you know, what is Wi-Fi or, you know, stuff like that. And then just to quickly say, I, I have other chapters, like a chapter on cyber kind, like you said, I talk about moderation and then I bring it back to like, this is a family affair and some fun activities, even a page where kids are encouraged to interview someone just like you, Luke, who's a cyber expert um, to get inspired about how cool that career is and what, how important it is and what it does for all of us. So there's a lot of really um, nitty gritty tips that go up and down the age group kids, parents, grandparents, any age group, but also drive these family conversations. Yeah, those are some big topics. So uh, that that's great. And, and thanks for putting the pitch in for uh, considering the profession, because that's obviously something that uh, we're all very concerned about. So it'd be great if you could encourage, uh, encourage them at a young age to go into the job. So um, I'm just wondering, you know, in your research, did you find anything that surprised you uh, that you weren't aware of that said, oh, that's, that's part of cybersecurity? That's a good question. You know, there was a lot that that I got much more mindful about. I mean, I will say that while, you know, per the beginning of this interview, I've always used the tactic in behavior change that children are great change agents in a family. Always loved that, always used it in my healthcare programs and now in my books. I don't think I was as aware as I am now with the book being out for a while and a lot of companies using it for employee-focused programs, just how much that was true, how much um, bringing conversations into households helps and inspires adults to want to learn the topic. So th that I learned. And then I also learned a lot more, frankly, about the bad guys. Cyber criminals, I hate to give them credit, but man, they're smart. And, you know, during COVID and with a lot of people, and then after, you know, in these new days of a lot of people working from home, they're going out of their way in a really smart way to target kids or target work from home employees, because they know that it's, I mean, I'm, I know you know this, but they know it's a weak link. So bringing the conversations into homes where children are using their parents' network and that. So I learned a lot more about how cyber criminals will look at the weakest link, which often will be a child, you know, and, and use that. Um, so unfortunately I got a lot more suspicious. Um, <laughs> yes, with, I was just uh, talking to one of my colleagues this morning about how this job has made me paranoid. And he said, yeah, that's a great thing. And, and actually speaking of paranoid stuff, like, sure. I always heard it's smart to say to yourself or to your children or your parents, Hey, don't, sign into your bank account at the airport on a public network. But 
I don't know that I digested that as much. And I, in, um, I do a lot of events for companies for their employees, either reading events for kids and families or events for employees like top tips on raising cyber smart kids. And when I do the latter, a lot of employees will start asking, oh, gee, you know, things like what I just said. Really? I, I sh you know, talk to me a little deeper about public networks. What should I have my kid not do? You know, et cetera. Right. It's the world is built for convenience more than security usually. And so, and that's the way we're wired too, because I mean, the, the internet and just the changes over the last decade have made so much possible, but with that comes so much greater potential for people to use technology against us. You, you've mentioned a couple of times how companies have used the book or, or someone, uh, usually that your books start off with, with larger orders. Tell me a little bit more about that model. Uh, Cause you're, it seems less about the individual purchases and more about kind of a mass, a mass market abilities. Well, I will say there are, I mean, obviously I love when my books spread because I only write one book a year and I really, after 25 years in the nonprofit sector, a lot of this is very cause-based for me. So I care if a family gets the book and it changes their knowledge and behavior and makes them all safer. So I won't discount that at all because it affects and supports that family. However, most of the ways my books spread are more in bulk where, and I'll, I'll give you some examples. I mean, obviously you can imagine that CISOs and security education teams are often those that find this particular book. And it's been, and I have to say, I love your community. And I just have to just do a quick pitch for your community because what I find is you guys combine amazing critical thinking skills with strategic planning with being gutsy enough to try new things because the bad guys always are. So, so you're innovative um, and you're willing to try new things, which, and last pitch for you guys, there's an amazing passion that I found in my clients that marries really care about the cause with really smart corporate executives. So anyway. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. With that in mind, um, I have to say I'm ignoring some of my other books so I could work with CISOs more because they're so smart and fun. But um, how they use my this book has been a blast. It's been, I mean, as you know, October's Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So a lot of people specifically will um, take the book for October, but also January's Data Security Day and April is Take Your Child to Work Day. And there's always touch points in the company if not through ERGs or outreach, companies have been a blast to work with with the book. And, you know, obviously there's a lot in it for them because the line between uh, personal and professional use of digital devices is pretty much obliterated these days. So data breaches and network disruptions mean that promoting data security awareness among employees and clients is really more important than ever. Um, so it's strategically valuable for them to promote best security practices in home settings, including training children. So ways that companies have brought in by um, cyber, the super smart cyber guide for kids has been A, giving the books to employees at touch points like October Cybersecurity Awareness Month, January Data Security Day, April, Take Your Child to Work Day, other touch points. Two, as I was saying, wink, wink, educate their kids, but really bring the topics to have family conversations and change employee learning and habit forming. So one is that. Another is by inviting me as the author, either in person or virtually, during those touch points or year round for interactive reading events with either their employees or their client families. It's this fun, cool event where kids have the book. It's not reading at them. They get to answer questions and read things and their parents get to gloat, you know, in the background, listening and learning themselves. In addition, many of them have had me do events for their employees or clients where it's just for adults. The, the speech is called Tips on Raising Cyber Smart children. And it really goes through some of the top tips is often me speaking or sometimes is 
uh, interactive dialogue with the CISO and myself that really brings the drills in the message. And by the way, gets their employees really excited about learning cybersecurity because, I mean, you said you have a four-year-old, Luke? Three and a half, yeah. Three, okay. Three and a half. Three and three months and five days. Okay. Um, you know, you'll do something that will protect your child. So you will want to learn about that. It will get you where you might not engage in a cyber education program in your company. Your ears will perk up if if there's a speech on um, offered on ways to keep your child cyber safe. Other ways the book's been used have been um, as branded swag at conferences that companies sponsor. A really interesting way that I'm finding is, you know, CISOs, especially ones at companies where they're not the income generating part of the business, which is many of them, buying an extra box and gifting it to board members and executives to go home to their household as a great way to get in conversations and show their importance. And then lastly, we've had some, you know, very socially minded companies that have donated copies to local schools, nonprofits, boys and girls clubs, because they care about, as we need to, the teaching the next generation to get excited about this as a career. Right. That's great. So if, uh, if any of our listeners or members wanted to get their hands on a copy of the book, what's the best way to do that? Our website to see more and sample cake pages. Our website is wateringcanpress.com. Wateringcanpress.com. On that site, individuals can either buy a copy, find links to buy an ebook version, which is sold on Amazon and other ebook sites. And then for companies interested in buying discounted bulk orders, um, on our website, wateringcanpress.com, there's contact information um, to contact us for discounted bulk orders for corporate programs. Um, so emailing us at info at wateringcanpress.com um, lets those interested in buying bulk to do that. Excellent. Well, fascinating book, great project, uh, great product, and I'm glad you came on and, and told us all about it. I'm glad we're able to connect. Uh, Ellen Saban, thank you very much for joining us. And now we're joined by Lee Clark, the RHI Saxone, with The Briefing. Lee, take it away. Hi, Luke. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here, as always. So for this month, I wanted to highlight a couple of the major stories we've been seeing, right? Uh, we talked a little bit about CLOP on a, a previous episode. And, and CLOP activity continues you know, unabated as they continue to announce new victims and, and publish victims. But I didn't want us to become an all-CLOP all-the-time shop. Uh, so I thought we might take a minute to talk about other stories uh, that have been sort of hitting the threat landscape recently. Sounds like a plan. We don't want to be the clap shop. Sure, sure. Uh, so uh, the first one uh, that I was going to point out, we, we put this up on our blog uh, a while back, was that uh, multiple international cybersecurity agencies released a joint alert uh, on web application cross-control text via IDOR vulnerabilities. And I'll freely confess this is something that I hadn't heard of. Uh, this happens in cybersecurity. Sometimes I'll find out about a, a protocol or a tool or something that I haven't previously heard of. But uh, IDOR stands for Insecure Direct Object Reference, I-D-O-R. And this is uh, a system in web applications, right? So the Australian Signals Directorate uh, Cybersecurity Center, the ACSC, uh, the U.S. Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, uh, CISA, CISA, and the U.S. National Security Agency, the NSA, released this advisory to warn vendors, designers, and developers of web applications and organizations using web applications about these vulnerabilities. This advisory primarily consists of recommended defensive measures to mitigate these IDOR flaws that CISA talks about. And this is a, a pretty interesting report considering these things are, are typically urgent, right? Yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of out of the ordinary for this all hands on deck kind of everybody, uh, all these countries working together. So what, what prompted this urgent alert? 
Sure. So without venturing into wild speculation, uh, I will say oftentimes these sort of vague, hey, look at these vulnerabilities, fix them in your networks. Often those announcements from an organization like CISA will be prompted by a campaign or an incident or something that they're witnessing behind the scenes that are not yet ready to fully disclose findings or anything to the public. Maybe they're pending investigation. Maybe they're getting ready to do some type of arrest or takedown operation or something, or, or maybe they just don't have enough information to, to fully give something to the public. So what they, what they do instead is they release an operation, uh, a memo that says, hey, these things are really dangerous. So uh, right now, the RHI Stack Intel team is collaborating with a lot of our member analysts to determine if anybody has seen any evidence uh, not in open source of a potential incident uh, or any chatter on the dark web that could indicate whether there's a campaign or a, a widespread significant incident going on involving idle vulnerabilities thus far. I haven't seen any indication of that in open source or the dark web uh, on any significant campaign or incidents. Uh, we're going to continue to keep a lookout, and we will update uh, the community, of course, uh, as we find it. But this is one that I would recommend that listeners uh, kind of keep an eye on uh, as well, because uh, web applications are, of course, widely used, and IDOR being a feature of those is also widely used across multiple industries. So it's it's one to to keep in mind because CISA doesn't release these alerts uh, for fun, right? They they don't do it uh, just for the, the thrill that they they have a reason for releasing this alert at this particular time, right? The next sort of uh, fun story I wanted to talk about was uh, on August 9th, researchers at Proofpoint reported on technical details of a campaign that they've observed between March and June of this year that's been leveraging the evil proxy phishing as a service tool. This is targeting executives at over 100 global firms. Should note that Proofpoint didn't identify the firms or even what industries uh, those firms are in. Now, this campaign is using evil proxy, the phishing as a service tool again, to target executives with a combination of attacker in the middle, uh, AITM, and account takeover tactics. And the reason I wanted to highlight uh, this story in particular for uh, our, our briefing here is that RHI SEC member analysts regularly report strategic, uh, technical, and open source intelligence related to AITM attacker in the middle attacks, uh, especially evil proxy. Evil proxy is a very common, very popular tool sold to multiple threat actors uh, for, for use in, in ATO attacks, right? The RHI SEC Intel team has been tracking and reporting this type of attacker in the middle activity and especially evil proxy activity for a, a, at least two years now. Back in August of last year, Zscaler researchers released a report on technical details of another AITM campaign that they saw that had been active since at least June of 2022. We assessed at that time, based on timing and nearly identical tactics, techniques, and procedures, that the campaign reported by Zscaler was likely directly connected to a campaign reported by Microsoft's Intel team in the same months, right back in uh, August of last year. We made that assessment based on the time frame of multiple TTPs. Now, these TTPs include things like um, nearly identical registered domains, lure accounts being logged into by attackers eight minutes after researchers sent credentials to the attackers, phishing domains, imitating financial organizations, uh, phishing emails appearing to come from legitimate email addresses at legitimate organizations, and then emails containing links in the body or inside an HTML file attachment, right? And then uh, phishing sites redirecting and hosting using diverse methods. The sort of benefit of the attacker in the middle uh, approach is that it usually goes around multi-factor authentication. So it's an MFA bypass methodology, and that's one of the things that makes it, you know, sort of uh, a little bit higher on the uh, the priority 
matrix whenever we, we look at it, right? We, we've released multiple reports uh, specifically on this tool and on uh, the types of attack that this tool enables, uh, as, as well as uh, a little plug for our MISP instance here. Uh, our Melpedia Galaxy and the RHI stack MISP instance includes a profile on the Eden proxy tools that includes TTPs, public instances of the tools uses in campaign, as well as indicators that we have. Uh, from members directly related to the the tool itself. Well, that's great that that from your vantage point and from our vantage point, we're able to pull in those different reports and relate them to each other. So we can see that it's one, at least if it's not a unified attack, at least the same same tool being used. Yeah, and discovering these patterns is and, and codifying them, indexing them, and keeping them in a record is beneficial because... So the center of CTI is actionability. The things that we read, research, and produce have to lead decision makers who receive the products into a decision that can increase physical and cybersecurity protocols at an organization, right? The end game of CTI is ultimately to improve cybersecurity in a material way. And by indexing those types of historical events and creating those pattern connections within a, a tool like MISP, especially when you combine that with technical intelligence that you have uh, related to these types of attacks and these specific tools, that creates a historical background that helps develop context for a, a senior decision maker. And that helps them make a more informed decision over time. So, what this does is it creates a, a depth of reasoning for a decision that, that helps you ensure that your decisions are going to be more grounded over time, right? So I want to round this out with a brief discussion on the Gigabug Remote Access Trojan. Uh, this report came through... Uh, in the course of a previous week or so, on an Android banking malware that's been targeting institutions across multiple countries, specifically uh, in Asia, Southeast Asia, and Latin America. All right, this is a, a new Android banking malware called Gigabug. One of the unique features of this is that it doesn't execute any malicious actions until the user is authorized into the malicious application by a threat actor via fraud, which makes it harder to detect. Now, this research comes from uh, Group IB, uh, so, so we tend to, to rate their cyber threat intelligence pretty highly, right? Uh, in addition, uh, instead of using HTML overlay attacks, the Gigabud rat gathers sensitive information primarily through screen recording, right? So these are a couple of interesting things that enable the threat actors to trick the target uh, into accessing uh, their fraudulent uh, tool, right? And to steal credentials in a couple of different ways, right? Uh, by recording the screen, they can see what's being typed into uh, to login pages. Um, so... This becomes interesting for our community uh, in a number of ways. The first of which is, is geographic, right? These attacks primarily since the beginning of the year have been targeting organizations and users in Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam, the Philippines, uh, and Peru. The RHISEC is increasingly developing our membership base uh, in the Asia and Pacific region, right? We do a monthly call with our members uh, in the Asia Pacific region, as well as uh, being in the beginning stages, starting to host events. Luke, you've actually traveled a couple times to, to Asia to speak with members and prospects there about the benefits of the ISAC globally, right? Yep, Australia specifically, but love to go back. Love to have an excuse to go back. But so that's interesting. This is geographic. Um, does that mean it's kind of like a canary in the coal mine as well? that we can see this expand? Yeah, so it can be, right? Um, it can be a number of things. Uh, malware and cyber threat campaigns can, can be canaries in the coal mine to determine that things are going to spread. Like, for instance, Lapsus uh, originally primarily targeted banks in Latin America until it turned out they 
they were targeting uh, grocery stores, uh, technology farms uh, globally, right? Don't get originally. They start out, uh, it could be uh, a language element. Uh, there, there, there could be a, a language barrier based on uh, how the threat actors are, are able to target, or it's always possible that this is, uh, you know, connected to a nation state nexus, and that nation state has a particular interest in targets in the regions uh, that are listed here, right? There's, there's a few reasons that uh, cyber attacks can be uh, geographic, and, and one of them is the targeting of cyber threat actors. These may be organizations and places that the threat actors are familiar with and then may expand out later on as they exhaust the target-rich environment that's geographically near them. But we also find uh, that geography can be helpful in running CTI investigations because occasionally attacks will be organization-focused. Occasionally attacks will be industry-focused, but more often we actually see attacks targeting diverse organizations and target types, but they're often contained uh, geographically for the reasons discussed here. The second reason I highlight this is because banking malwares uh, and ATM malware are quite frequently known to eventually turn into point-of-sale malware. Happens all the time, like uh, Prilex, uh, one of the, the most prevalent POS malwares that we see attacking retail organizations and, and trying to get in the middle of, of transactions at point-of-sale systems. Uh, Prilex started out uh, as an ATM and a banking malware, right, and that was eventually repurposed and modified by various threat actors and went through a number of versions. That is now the most prevalent uh, point-of-sale malware that, that we see out there. Not to mention the reuse of credentials by organizations and, and users uh, between, let's say, uh, bank accounts and a loyalty rewards program at a hotel. You wouldn't be uncommon at all for, for an organization or for you know an individual user to, to reuse those credentials. And this is one of the benefits of a, of a credential-stealing attack like the, like the Gigabug attack we're talking about here. Because if you been able to use your screen grab ability to steal credentials for someone's bank, uh, you probably also have their streaming login or their hotel rewards login or their airline points login, right? Um, I hesitate to call it poor password management, even though that, that would be like the technical term of it. The, the average user doesn't have the knowledge or even resources or inclination to say, use uh, a convoluted password manager that, that will hold the keys for everything, right? Um, Just a couple of weeks ago, someone asked me, what is, the, what is the number one thing? You work in cybersecurity. What's the number one thing you would advise me as an individual not to do? And I said, do not reuse your passwords. So, so, so I mean, this is like a, a frequent argument among cybersecurity practitioners. Is like, how do you protect grandma's streaming subscriptions and everything? And Overwhelmingly, I come to, and this is a, a huge no-no in the cybersecurity world. Every certification test you'll take will tell you this is a poor practice. Uh, write it down on a, a note card and put it in grandma's drawer so she knows she can open up the drawer and see the password written down there. All right, if you're in an office place, that's an atrocious cybersecurity uh, practice. And maybe it is for your grandma whenever the plumbers come over or something, right? Uh, but, but overwhelmingly, one of the you're, you're, you're absolutely right, Luke. Overwhelmingly, one of the biggest vulnerabilities every single industry, as well as average users out there uh, who are protecting their personal cybersecurity, overwhelmingly, the one of the biggest ones we see is the the reuse of passwords. If you get one, you've got them all, right? If 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 I get your streaming password, all of a sudden I can start taking money out of your bank account, right? So the old post-it note, we do recommend it sometimes. Sometimes in, in isolated cases where it's it's not going to cause additional security things or you're not going to get fired for a security breach, uh, it's, it's, it's a perfectly effective uh, method. Um, but on the other hand, use a password manager. It, it is true. Now, all of these things in cybersecurity have gifts and takes, right? And multiple password managers have, have been compromised before and, and data's been leaked and 
everything's a gamble. Uh, these are the methods that we know provide the most bang for buck in terms of safety, right? Well, thank you, Lee Clark, for joining us once again. You are, of course, the cyber threat intelligence analyst and writer for the RHISAC. Always appreciate you when you come on for the briefing. Thanks, Look, It is always a privilege to talk to the membership. Thank you to all of my guests for the scintillating conversations. Charles Fedorko of Sage Hospitality, Ellen Sabin of Watering Can Press, and our own Lee Clark. If you want to discuss anything you've heard today, or if you have an idea for a podcast segment, or you just want to be on yourself, or if you want more information about membership in the RHISAC, shoot us an email at podcast at rhisac.org. As always, thank you to the production team who tried their hardest to make us sound good. For the RHISAC, that's Annie Chambliss and Marisa Trushinecki. And from the CyberWire, Trey Hester, Jennifer Iben, and Elliot Peltzman. Thanks as always to you for listening and stay safe out there. <laughs>